This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio in London. I'm Guy Johnson. Tonight, alongside Bloomberg's Christine Aquino, which is perfectly timed her joining us uh, as a guest host this evening because there's a huge macro theme running through these markets. Christine, the surprise for me over the last few days has been the incredible data we're getting out of the Eurozone in terms of inflation and the fact that we now have a, a positive German two-year. Um, the Schatz, as it's known, Bunt Bobble Schatz, twos, fives and tens. We now have a positive German two-year. How big a problem does the ECB have right now? <laughs> Guy, uh, it's pretty considerable given that they're probably some of the more uh, dovish end of the spectrum when it comes to global central banks. We know that, of course, the Federal Reserve and the Bank of England have started that tightening process, but the ECB is quite a ways away from that. But now I think investors are really realizing that it might be time for them to reconsider that. We already heard from Christine Lagarde from earlier um, uh, rate decisions this year that they, they are not um, outside considering a rate hike this year and that rings ever truer now that we've gotten more inflation figures out of the eurozone we're going to come back we're going to talk about this in just a moment Uh, we'll get more details on what is happening here we'll talk about the inflation data uh, that we've got we'll talk about the inflation data we're going to get tomorrow uh, because we get data from france and italy uh, and we'll drill down into this i have to say capital economics out with a huge number in terms of the hikes they're now expecting from the ecb jonathan ferro tweeting that one out a little bit earlier on we'll come back to that in the moment just before we get to charlie pettit for some headlines. Let me just give you a quick update on what's happening with the equity markets. FTSE 100 today finishing positive up by half of 1%. A uh, bit of a roll reversal today. Commodities coming roaring back. Oil up. Mining stocks up quite nicely. That's turned the FTSE around. But on the continent, uh, the DAX down by 1.5%. Stateside, the NASDAQ is off by half of 1%. The S&P is trading at 46.14. Uh, it is down by four-tenths of 1%. So those are the markets. Let's get the headlines. Charlie Pellet. I thank you very much indeed, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Russia says it's regrouping its its forces in Ukraine in a push to complete the takeover of the eastern Donbass region, a sign that Moscow is not slowing all military activity despite a pledge to cut operations. Yesterday, Russia announced it was cutting operations in what it called an effort to build confidence amid talks on a possible ceasefire. Ukraine and its western allies say the move appeared to be merely an attempt to buy more time since Russia had failed to gain ground against Ukraine's military. COVID-19 infections in the UK have edged back up following the easing of restrictions and rapid spread of a more transmissible subvariant of Omicron. In the UK, more than 574,000 people have tested positive and about 15,000 hospitalized in the past week. Chief Scientific Advisor Patrick Valance says this wave may be close to peaking. 
The UK uh, is setting out legislation aimed at thwarting a bid by P&O ferries to save money by firing staff without holding a compulsory consultation with unions. Transport Secretary Grant Shapp said in Parliament that the new law will require employees on ferries calling at UK ports to be paid the country's minimum wage in a move to void savings from P&O's plan to shift to agency workers. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Charlie's going to be back in around 30 minutes' time to keep us updated with the headlines. But let's get back to this inflation narrative, which is so intermeshed with what is happening in Russia and Ukraine right now. Today we had data out from Spain. The headline number there, nearly 10%. In Germany, it was 7.6%. Uh, this is preliminary data for the month of March. This is way above expectations. Tomorrow, as I say, we're going to get data out from France and Italy. The Italian number was already expected to be in the high sevens. Then Friday, we get data out from the Eurozone in aggregate. All of this is putting the ECB in a very difficult place. We're going we're gonna to be talking about rate hikes potentially from the, uh, the ECB this year. Certainly that is now being priced. Uh, but some houses are coming out with some really aggressive targets in terms of what could be possible here. I mentioned capital economics. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But Christine, let's get back and talk about kind of what is happening here. Why is, why is the market, why are economists, why is the ECB so far behind the curve when it comes to this inflation narrative? How much of this is simply down to the fact that energy prices are rising aggressively as a result of the Ukrainian war? Well, Guy, that's certainly part and parcel of it. But you can hardly really blame the ECB and everyone really watching the European economy because for the longest time, they had undershot that inflation target yep. of just around 2%. And, you know, I think people have really gotten used to the fact that prices remained really, really low, much to the chagrin of ECB policy policymakers because they spent so much, so many, so much time trying to get those prices back up and it's really only now that we're seeing this of course it's partly a commodity story as a result of the war in ukraine but we also know just looking at various or several months worth of data now that is a broad-based increase in prices you know we're talking about an increase in the price of goods an increase in the price of basic food an increase in the price of labor and so this is all really coming together at a time that the commodity story is also coming into play which makes it an even more of a difficult job for the ECB ahead. How is the ECB going to deal with this? So Capital Economics and, and my good friend and colleague John Farrow tweeting this out a little bit earlier on, putting out a note earlier on today saying, we think, quote, we think the ECB will not want to wait much longer before beginning to raise interest rates. Our new forecast is for three 25 basis point hikes this year and five 25 basis points hikes next year. That would bring the deposit rate to 1.5% by the end of 2023. Christine, what do you make of that? That sounds unbelievably aggressive from where we were even a few days ago. Absolutely, Guy. It is quite aggressive, but I think it is very reflective of how investors are interpreting the big task that is ahead for the ECB. Again, because of this fear that potentially they may be already running behind the curve in terms of trying to yep. rein in those prices. Even when you look at a pricing in money markets at the moment, people are now expecting the deposit rate to return to zero. So the end of the negative rates era in the Eurozone by around October or December. So yep. that's something that they see as happening this year. So 1.5%, not very far off from these levels. Yeah, Capital Economics is talking about three hikes this year and five next year. 
that that would be a massive pivot from the ECB. The, the concern now in the States is that the Fed's going to cause a recession over there. The Eurozone faces many more problems. It's, it's much more directly impacted by the war uh, over in Ukraine. Uh, the energy components of that, of that conflict is, is certainly something that is causing huge problems. We'll talk about that a little bit later on in the show. If the, if the ECB was forced into hiking at that kind of pace, I, how, how would you rate the odds of a recession here? Well, I think that that definitely raises the risk of a slowdown immediately after we see um, any kind of rate hikes, yeah. um, the likes of what capital economics is describing. And that, I think, is the fear that is shared by other policymakers outside of Europe. The Fed certainly is, is definitely a concern for them. People fretting about the possibility that after policymakers, whether in Europe or in the U.S., deliver the kind of rate hikes that markets yeah. are expecting, they're immediately going to have to pivot back from that. But but I, the, the, gr- the growth slowdown, the growth risk in the States looks much less pronounced than, than it, it does in Europe. I was talking to Tom Barkin from, from Richmond, the Federal Reserve there, talking about the, not Richmond in Southwest London, Richmond in the United States, um, talking about the idea that he still sees quite momentum in the US economy. He's still quite positive about the US economy. The European economy looks like it's already slowing down rapidly. I, th- there's talk of there's talk of rationing of energy in Germany. I, is that an environment the ECB can really be hiking rates, or does it just simply, as a result of its mandate, not have any choice? Its mandate, unlike the Fed's, is inflation, two percent. That's the deal. We are way away from that. Absolutely, Guy. And I think this really is what poses such a problem for the ECB is really getting that balance of growth and inflation, right? You're absolutely correct in pointing out just the geographic proximity of Europe to the war in Ukraine. And of course, it's closer ties to Russia when it comes to energy supply and just economic ties. When you factor all of that in, Europe really does have a lot more to lose than the U.S. when it comes to how this war develops, when it comes to how and whether uh, Europe's relationship with Russia deteriorates further as a result of the current geopolitical situation. But but how does Lagarde manage the message? How does how does she deal with the growth risk that goes with this? The ECB has been front and center in providing the glue that has kept the eurozone together. If you get a major recession, you get sky high inflation, you get yields blowing out quarter periphery. I, I don't know what BTPs would do in that kind of environment, but they would. They, I, the, the spread. I mean, I, we could check now. The uh, the, the the current spread over over Germany is I, significant, but relative to history, relatively low. I'm standing up, so I'm actually struggling to to see what this looks like. But I'll get there in a second. Take a so seat, guy. At, at the moment, yeah. we're 147 over Germany on Italy. You get the kind of rate hikes, like what are they talking about at Capital Economics? Three this year, five next year. Uh, eight, that's, that's a lot of basis points added onto a spread that is already starting to move wider. Absolutely, Guy. And, you know, to the question of how Lagarde is going to manage this, I would say very, very carefully, like it's the tightest tightrope that she's ever going to have to walk. Um, because, again, I think, you know, the, the optionality and stressing that to investors, to anyone watching the ECB would be very important. I think any signal that even though the ECB is standing ready to fight inflation, yeah. I think they're going to have to indicate that they're ready to support the economy in- so, so, okay, so are they still in the business of managing spreads, do you think? Because right at the beginning of Christine Lagarde's tenure, 
she made a massive mistake in one of her early press conferences when she was asked about spreads. And, and she basically said, we're not in the business of managing spreads. That was quickly corrected. And it was made very clear that the ECB was in the business of managing spreads, i.e. keeping core and periphery together tightly in terms of their relative borrowing costs. If the ECB now has to focus on inflation, can it continue to manage those spreads? QE is going to be wound down. That was one of the primary tools by which it did that. Reinvestments may continue. But even then, we may not have to even question the possibility that reinvestments start to taper off and we start to get actual QT in the eurozone as well. Listen, they can never really get away from managing spreads. And I'm pretty sure that Christine Lagarde and the rest of the ECB have learned that lesson. OK, uh, but, but how do they do it? How do they do it when they're fighting inflation, I guess, is the question that I a think, lot of people are going to try. You know, and... I think it's going to have to boil down to the pace at which um, they're, they're going to manage it. I think it will be inevitable that we will see a wider Italy-Germany spread, just given the direction of travel when it comes to policy um, and the winding down of bond purchases. I think in Investors have accepted that. I think now it's going to be a question of how quickly we get there. We know that markets hate um, more than anything, anything that, that moves too quickly for their liking, yep. that tends to get punished in, um, in in markets, and investors really fret about that. And so even if investors have to accept the fact that spreads are going to be wider, if they are able to, the ECB is able to manage that in a measured pace, in a graduated pace, instead of uh, uh, letting it sky rocket, then that would do, put them do, in a better position. Can it do that, though? I, the Fed's been forced, basically, to significantly accelerate where 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 it's going uh, in terms of the rate hikes. I, I, what was it Morgan Stanley the other day? 50, 50, 50, 25, 25. I, just I, really aggressive rate hiking. Capital economics is now saying the ECB may be forced into that same sort of environment i.e. the inflationary impulse is going to get is going to get significantly worse much more quickly because the central banks are way behind the curve we don't have the same labor market problem in europe as we do in the united states so that's certainly one thing on the side of the ecb but it does have this massive potentially long-lasting inflationary impact coming from energy yeah, well, to the question of can they do that? Uh, well, we don't know, but they're certainly going to have to try. Um, and I think as a central bank, you know, that's always the goal is to try and instill that gradualism in markets. But yeah, I think, you know, we may be in for a similar gyration as we saw in the Treasury market this month, where just a, a whole swath of bonds will have to reprice the fact that the ECB will have to get going on this tightening process. Yeah. It will have to get started this year. And, you know, it may reach a ceiling at some point when it comes to yield levels just because there is still always interest in um, buying bonds, particularly German bonds, which are considered some of the safest, most liquid assets. But I think they're going to have to go through this period of difficult adjustment and repricing higher in yields. Christine and I are going to stick around. Uh, we need to carry on the conversation, particularly maybe taking in the direction of what is happening with the Ukrainian conflict. Yesterday, there was an awful lot of positivity surrounding the idea that maybe there was a path to peace. Maybe the Russians were looking for an off-ramp. That has definitely had a lot of cold water poured on it today. Uh, we are seeing some very aggressive fighting continuing. Uh, we obviously are seeing that maybe more focused in the south and the east. But nevertheless, the off-ramp maybe looks much, much further away. Mark Champion's going to join us to give us an update uh, on what we need to know. We'll do that next. This is The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. 
Good evening, welcome back. 18 minutes past the hour. You're listening to The Cable. I'm Guy Johnson. Alongside this evening, Christine Aquino. We're just getting a readout of a conversation that has been taking place over the last couple of hours uh, between President Zelensky and Biden. Zelensky saying uh, that he shared battlefield and talks assessments with President Biden uh, and discussed defence support and new sanctions with the US President. Uh, we got uh, commentary coming through uh, from Interfax a little earlier out of Moscow saying that Russian forces are ready to take full control of Donbass. The focus certainly seems to be, um, and maybe this was consistent with actually early objectives, uh, the focus now seems to be for Russian troops, uh, the south and the east of Ukraine. This follows obviously yesterday's excitement over the possibility of a path to peace. The talks were going to deliver something in Istanbul that has now had significant amounts of cold water poured upon it. Mark Champion, Bloomberg senior reporter for international affairs, uh, joining Christine and I this evening. Mark, what, what is your assessment of what now comes next? Yesterday feels like a distant memory. Uh, you've got Zelensky talking about more defence support, new sanctions. Uh, he's been discussing that with Biden. The British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, was alluding to that a little earlier on. There's been a brief sort of hiatus in terms of kind of ratcheting the tension higher. Is that what comes next, though? Yes. I, mean, you, I think you, uh, at the moment, just take the Russians at their word, um, because their word at, right now, unlike uh, many times before, it, it's aligned with what they're actually doing on the ground. So what they're saying now is, we're going to take the Donbass region, uh, and that is exactly what they're doing. So they've already, they, they started about a third of it. Now they've got, you know, it's between 65, 75% of it. Um, and Mariupol, of course, is a very advanced stage of siege. Uh, that's the biggest city remaining yeah. in Ukrainian hands in that region. Uh, so, you know, that is exactly what they're going to do. I, the real question is what comes after that? If they had, you know, this whole campaign to do again, I'm pretty sure what they would have done is nothing until they had taken the east. And then they would start thinking about Kiev and so on. And because they overextended themselves on multiple fronts, did very poorly. Uh, and uh, so we're in a way we're going to square one of, you know, an alternate strategy. And we, what we don't know is whether they've also changed their goals so that now the, the, you know, either the Donbass region will be enough or the Donbass region plus a land corridor that goes to Crimea will be enough or that they simply consolidate that, have their military in a much better position logistically and uh, you know, in, in other ways as well and start moving west. We just don't know. Well, Mark, let me bring in the market reaction to all of this, because yesterday, you know, we, we did get quite a positive reaction, even though we didn't necessarily get a concrete um, a ceasefire deal or peace or deal or anything like that. So, you know, what what would you say would be the indication that there is real and concrete de-escalation in the conflict, even if it falls short of a concrete deal uh, with regards to a ceasefire or the, a seizing in the actual fighting? Well, I think you'd first have to see uh, an actual ceasefire. And, and one has to remember that in any conflict like this, you know, these are large, complex conflicts. In any conflict like this, you tend to have many ceasefires. There's not just one, uh, which is the end of the conflict. You, you may have dozens or hundreds in the course of the conflict. So if you still haven't had really 
any ceasefires, uh, then you know it's it's very you know some of those will be pauses, some of them will have intent, um, but you know it's it's very difficult to see. So yesterday, you know the, the talks that went in with some hope of like a 48-hour ceasefire, um, the talks ended with no ceasefire. Uh, that's a pretty good indication that you uh, you know you still got an awful long way to go. Mark, how much does the weather factor in to what comes next? Um, it, it is starting to warm up. Fields are getting boggy. They will then dry out a great deal. Right. I'm just wondering if, if that will play a part in terms of the sequencing of what we're going to see on the ground. Yeah, it, I mean, it will play a part. What's really interesting is that, you know, the... the, the the, 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 we know there was a lot of discussion about you know the mud season before yep. all this happened and it created a window etc. The, the truth is that uh, when the invasion began, uh, the, the ground was not frozen, and one of the reasons why the Russians spent so much time just on the roads and were left yep. in these very vulnerable convoys and so on, and the, their tanks got picked off on the roads was that when they get off the roads they get stuck and you can see all these pictures of you know uh, of tanks that have been abandoned in mud when they tried to get off the road so uh, that's going to get worse now for a while but then uh, it'll get better and then it will get better and you've got a long summer season when it's uh, you know much easier much more predictable to, to find and Mark, what's your read of the current situation when it comes to the sanctions that have been implemented and the potential for more? Is that something that you think could come uh, even before, for instance, the May 25th um, Treasury carve-out that has been put into place? Is it possible that we see more and more of an escalation before that date? And do you think that that would lead to a further deterioration in the situation on the ground right now? Well, I mean, the, the relationship between sanctions and what happens on the ground is, I mean, completely unpredictable and, uh, you know, very, very hard to really draw a line. Uh, so, you know, generally, I mean, I, I'm going to hold up my hand and say that at the beginning of this conflict, um, I was totally wrong about the level of sanctions that would be imposed. They were much tougher than I expected, much more quickly. Um, you know, Germany in particular was a big surprise. But I think we've now got to a point where it's incredibly hard uh, for the Germans in particular, but there are others too in Europe, to do what would really make a big difference at this point, which is uh, just to stop oil exports from Russia. Uh, this is what was done to Iran, and it would have a, a big impact on the uh, Russian economy. Um, but that is incredibly difficult to do, and you have all these discussions now going on where the, the Russians kind of tried to use it as a threat themselves, saying, you know, you're going to have to buy in rubles. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the G7, including Germany, have said, you know, we're not going to do that. Um, and they're now all in discussions. It's going to be, yeah. uh, you know, messy. Mark, always appreciate the analysis and the updates. Thank you very much indeed, Bloomberg's Mark Champion. Uh, the British Prime Minister firmly focusing on the situation in Ukraine today, trying to divert attention away uh, from the Partygate scandal. We have seen fixed penalty fines now being issued. What impact is this going to have, do we think, on the Prime Minister's future? We'll discuss that next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome back. It is 5.30. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Christina Kino. Quick market check. 
European markets closing largely lower today on the equity front. The FTSE 100, though, positive on the day, 75.78. This as we see a bounce back in commodities, leading to some of the oil stocks coming back quite nicely, some of the mining stocks coming back quite nicely. So it was a bit of an exception today. Stateside, the Nasdaq is down around half of 1%. The S&P trading at 46.10 down by four-tenths of one percent. In a moment, we'll be talking about Boris Johnson's future. Before we do that, let's get a headline update with Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov says talks with Ukraine in Istanbul yesterday yielded no breakthroughs and a lot of work remains before a deal is possible, underlining the difficulties facing efforts to reach a ceasefire. Russia, meanwhile, says it's regrouping its forces in Ukraine in a push to complete the takeover of the eastern Donbass region, a sign that Moscow is not slowing all military activity despite a pledge to cut operations. Poland wants to stop importing Russian oil, gas and coal this year as moves intensify to wean Europe off of its dependence on energy supplies from the country over its war in Ukraine. Prices in UK shops rose in March at the fastest annual pace since September 2011, adding to the cost of living squeeze that is facing consumers. The report by the British Retail Consortium suggests that the war in Ukraine is now amplifying already surging inflation via higher commodity and transport costs. The BRC said that will dampen consumer confidence further. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie, really appreciate it. Thank you very much indeed. Bloomberg's Charlie Pellet's updating us there. Um, tough day for the Prime Minister today. Uh, he was in front of MPs down in Westminster. They grilled him on Ukraine and the UK's response. They grilled him on the cost of living crisis, uh, following what we've had recently from the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. And of course, they grilled him on the latest details of the Partygate scandal. Fixed penalty notices have been issued by the police. Speaking to the Liaison Committee, the Prime Minister said basically he wouldn't be drawn on accepting that laws had been broken. I've been, I, I hope, uh, very frank with the House about uh, where I think we've gone wrong and uh, the things that I, I regret that I, I apologise for. Let's talk more about the Prime Minister's future. Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, joining us now, a student of Boris Johnson uh, and his various issues. There are many. This is certainly one of the more significant ones, Therese. But we're now in a position where we have the Ukrainian war, we have the Labour Party no longer calling for his resignation as a result of that conflict. Is this a bullet that the Prime Minister has once again dodged? Yeah, I, I think it is. I think uh, we uh, were probably too quick to write him off a month ago. Of course, um, the war in Ukraine puts a lot of things into perspective. And, you know, as you as you just suggested, in you know, across the democratic world, I think we're seeing politicians of very different um, stripes uh, looking sort of closer together than they had otherwise. And I think that's probably temporary. But in uh, in UK politics, what it's meant is that the Tory party really needs to have uh, a sort of close look at themselves and say, do we really want to have a leadership challenge now? Um, and I think, you know, when we saw Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president's interview uh, in which he singles out Boris Johnson and, and the relationship with the UK, I mean, I think it really would take a lot for his own party now to 
you know, get out in front of British voters and decide that uh, that the country needs another leader. That said, Guy, I don't think his problems are over. No. Um, in many ways, what's facing him is, is uh, a, a lot harder than trying to explain away uh, some lockdown drinks. So, Terezia, walk us through this current uh, challenge that Boris Johnson is about to face. We know that UK inflation has run away. It's the fastest in three decades. We are about to see the worst cost of living crisis in a good few years in the UK in April. Is this really the sort of environment that uh, the the, the Tories and and Boris Johnson himself will want to be going into in in this current state of of, um, being challenged and, and, and kind of disarray? And what in this sort of environment could potentially revive those um, calls for his replacement yet again? Yeah, I mean, when you just ticked off the list of troubles awaiting Boris Johnson. I mean, I thought what was interesting today in Parliament, he was, you know, it was an aggressive, boisterous Johnson when he faced Prime Minister's questions. Keir Starmer tried to nail him on the cost of living, on the party gate, um, on all of these things that are, you know, coming up on the horizon, um, and particularly in April, because, you know, in April we see the tax increase. Uh, kick in. We see the increased energy pri- energy prices as will go up again in October. So you know all of those things are going to squeeze, and they're going to hurt more in the poorest parts of the country. And that's especially important because a key plank of Johnson's governing platform, pre- pretty much you know the, his stated reason for you know being in government is to level up the economy, to rebalance it. Well, that is going to take an enormous transfer of of wealth, of spending yep. for public services up north, it's not clear how they're going to do it. They have a you know very detailed plan, but it will take probably more funding than is available at that plan. So I think he's going to get a lot of pressure on these fronts. And as we heard from Rishi Sunak last week, they don't really have an answer to how to meet those challenges. They're not prepared to borrow more money. They want to lower taxes. They still have services uh, that they are promising to improve on. So I think it gets rougher for him, but I, I don't think Partygate right now is, uh, you know, the ultimate showdown that it looked yep. to be, you know, 35 days ago. Has Brexit gone from being an electoral advantage to being an electoral disadvantage if that cost of living squeeze starts to really get aggressive? You know, I still don't think Brexit is something the public want to think about. It's very clear that the costs are real. I mean, every yeah. you know indicator out there on trade frictions shows that Brexit is costing maybe long term more than COVID. Certainly, long term more so, than COVID. So, Therese, why does yes. why does Boris want Boris Johnson still want to talk about it? I mean, his advisors do think that in order to in order to sort of justify Brexit, they need to show to the public that there are benefits from Brexit. So reducing the, the VAT on fuel, for example, uh, you know, that is, a, that is a, a sort of tactic that they've decided will work for them. Um, and, you know, it, it, it requires a suspension of disbelief from the public who clearly are seeing costs going up. And the, narr- the government's narrative will be that those price increases are not due to Brexit. They're due to supply chain problems. They're due to increased energy costs. So once again, as we saw during COVID, where the uh, fr- you know, frictions and, and problems were blamed um, on the pandemic, they will be put off and uh, onto these other global challenges. But that doesn't mean the government is able to find um, benefits for Brexit. I think that's what he's mining for. He's appointed Jacob Rees-Mogg to decrease regulatory pressures on businesses. 
Um, but it's something the government feels yep. they need to go into the next election doing. Therese, thank you very much indeed. Really appreciate the time and the analysis. Bloomberg's Therese Raphael joining us on What Next for Boris Johnson. Christine, the Bank of England seems to be taking a very different tack to the Fed, basically signalling caution when it comes to growth rather than worrying about inflation. Are they going to be able to sustain that, do you think? Well, Guy, we've already seen those expectations for the Bank of England get dragged alongside what we were seeing with the Fed. So if they do try to, if they want to do that, it's going to be a difficult job for them for sure. Okay, up next, we're going to talk about one of the major components of that inflationary impulse that we're seeing at the moment, rising energy costs across Europe. We'll talk about that next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Christine Aquino this evening. We're joined in the studio by Asis Almeida to talk about the situation uh, with the availability of European gas. Germany and Austria today uh, starting a process, an emergency process, which ultimately, if we were to see it to fruition, could result in the, the, the rationing of energy in Europe. We're only at phase one at the moment, which is basically appears to be a kind of monitoring process. But let's get the details from, from ISIS. ISIS, what have the Germans done today? What have the Austrians done? Well, basically, they have a three-step plan in Germany in which the first one they've enacted today. And it's really a monitoring process. They will be looking at the gas coming into Germany, how much is being consumed, what the stockpiles look like. And they will be doing that with a task force on a daily basis. And the first... Um, Usually the first step is enacted when there's a threat, when there's a, you know, a sign and there's a serious, um, there's serious signs that there's going to be a threat to supply. So that is step number one. So um, and then there's step number two and three, and at which point in, in the third step, you start seeing the German government intervening in the market. So Isis, let's talk a bit more about this idea of rubles for gas, which was initially pushed by Putin as an idea, and it got immediate pushback from a lot of European governments, Italy included. But, you know, he's still pushing for it again, repeatedly. Talk to us about how feasible is it now, now that we, we have a little bit more detail, potentially, is it really something that could be implemented in a matter of months, maybe? Or are we talking years here? Well, I think if you start to talk about rubles, more than 50% of the contracts have been negotiated in euros. That's what's in the contract. And if you want to now pay in rubles, all the companies would have to agree. A contract renegotiation would have to be open. You know, we've seen in the past the contract negotiations could take months, but in many, many cases before they've taken years like up to three years you we've seen contract renegotiations go for and i think it could really backfire on putin you know because if he wants to be paid in rubles a lot of the european companies when they signed these contracts we had no plan to be net zero so the utilities might turn to russia and say okay well we'll pay you in rubles but how about we shorten the time frame of those contracts to 2030 instead of 2040. The Kremlin did say after the conversation between Putin and Scholz, the German Chancellor, that experts are going to discuss ruble gas payments. That's just coming from the Kremlin side. Where are we in terms of gas storage in Europe right now? Obviously, we're coming out of winter, so you'd expect it to be relatively low. The European Union has set a target for 90% of next year's gas to be in storage before next winter. Can you just talk about kind of where we are now and how far we've got to go and what needs to happen for that to become a reality? 
we are actually in a much better place than we were, I mean, probably the last time I was here. Um, if you look at, you know, we've really had mild weather. We, you know, it was a really mild winter all over Europe. It wasn't that bad. We suddenly started attracting, with high prices, we started attracting loads of LNGs. So the storage levels that were at some point at the lowest in more than a decade are actually now back within the five-year range. So it's looking a lot better. Um, so to fill storage just the next year, this is going to be Europe's biggest challenge, right? I think it's I think the first year is about 80 percent and then it goes up to 90. Um, and it, it will be our biggest challenge because we need that Russian gas to fill the storages. Otherwise, um, we just won't get there. I don't think we'll get there with just LNG. So Russian gas needs to continue flowing into Europe for us to build the stock for next winter. So I said, with regards to Europe's process of transitioning to cleaner, greener energy, you know, I think one point that this Russia situation really drove home is that that needs to happen much sooner than the governments are probably willing to do. Um, what's your read now of that situation? Is there really now more of a sense of urgency to speed up that process? Uh, absolutely, there is a sense of urgency, but it's funny because I feel like it's almost like you need to take a step back to then take two forward, right? What you can do immediately, you're not going to build a wind farm that sometimes takes seven years to be built, you know, in yeah, for tomorrow. <laughs> so yeah. basically what you can do in short term is actually keep coal plants open or reopen some of the shuttered coal plants, or you can, you know, try to bring um, an LNG floating terminal. And those are the things that you can do quicker. But Yes, everyone is trying to accelerate installation of renewables, and that in the longer term will have a bigger impact. Ice, it's great to see you. We haven't seen you for ages. Thank you very much indeed for stopping by Bloomberg's ISIS Almeida. Up next, we're going to return to the subject of the Fed and interest rates. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Christine Aquino. Let's talk about the Fed. The Fed is firmly in focus. This is the Federal Reserve of the United States, the U.S. central bank. Uh, it is expected to be raising rates aggressively going forward as it tries to tackle inflation. The big question is, will those rate hikes cause a recession? And ultimately, in order to get inflation down, does unemployment have to go up? Well, Mike McKee, Kayleigh Lines and I caught up with Richmond Fed President Tom Barkin a little bit earlier on. And Mike put that very question to him. There is still a ton of excess demand for labor right now. You can see that in the JOLTS report uh, yesterday. And so um, hopefully we'll get the market into balance and not have uh, unemployment uh, increase much. But we'll have to see where that goes. Well, following on the JOLTS report and the idea that there's still a ton of labor demand, what are CEOs in your district telling you about labor demand and about the wages they're having to pay? Anything slowing down? I, I wouldn't say it's slowing down, but I'd say the level of... Uh, frustration or desperation is definitely down from what it was uh, four or five months ago. Uh, some of that is because, uh, and we've seen good job growth the last few months, there are people coming back in the workforce. Uh, part of it is that people have increased wages, um, but a lot of it is also people have adjusted. They've adjusted their expectations, their practices, their investments in productivity uh, and automation. And so it's still a very tight labor market, no doubt about that. But I'd say the level of uh, angst of four or five months ago is definitely a down in the conversations I'm having. I wish I could say the same on supply chain. Mm. Uh, I think that continues to be a frustration um, for most everybody I talk to. Tom Barkin, the Richmond Fed president, talking to Mike McKee, Kayleigh Lines and myself a little bit earlier on. Mike McKee, 
joins us now. Mike, I thought he sounded really quite positive, certainly about the 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 story regarding the US economy. Supply chains uh, aside, he sounded quite positive on the labor market. He sounded quite positive on the consumer. I, he didn't he didn't suggest that a soft landing was possible, but he certainly sounded uh, as if he thought it was a conceivable kind of option at this point that the US would land softly, that the US economy would be able to deliver that soft landing driven by the Fed. What was your read? I, I think you're right. He did make the case, though, that price increases are still coming, that companies yeah. are still finding it easy to pass along price increases. But uh, he's going into this with an optimistic viewpoint. Now, we'll find out whether history justifies that yep. or not. It's kind of hard to know. So I suppose his uh, views is, are as valuable as anybody else's. Well, my, you know, hearing what we've heard from the Richmond Fed president and really a lot of the, the policy committee, there is a lot of optimism there, as you say, but quite the contrast from what um, we've been hearing from investors looking at this yield curve inversion and just fretting about the potential recession. What do you make of all of that? And is it really an overdone concern at this point? Well, if you ask the Fed, they think it's an overdone concern that is the uh, primary focus of news media people and not policymakers. Uh, the they're talking about you, Mike. Yeah, <laughs> and you, guy. I I have been ignoring the yield curve as much as possible. Um, the Fed looks at uh, the three month to eighteen month uh, yield curve more than anything else because they figure that shows you about as far out as you can make a semi-reliable prediction on what the Fed is going to have to do. And the twos tens has an irregular record of being able to predict anything within a certain time frame. So uh, the fact that the 210 spread has in the past led to recessions two, three years from now. Um, yep. Yeah. You know, it could be that guy bought a new car and the country went into recession but you know they're not making cars to buy let's just be let's just be clear about this let's try and go try and buy a new car right now you're on a hiding to nothing yeah i try and buy a second hand car at the moment you're on a hiding to nothing mike the 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 surprise for me in many respects is the way that the equity market is is as buoyant as it is there's this old phrase don't fight the fed do you think the fed is going to be frustrated that the equity market is fighting it that that it is as buoyant as it is uh i don't think the fed will Look at it that way. I mean, they've only just begun to tighten, and uh, we have a lot of cross currents going on. It is interesting that the markets are going up in light of what's going on over in Ukraine. Uh, yeah. That would seem to be scarier. But we have learned over the last some odd years that markets tend to want to go up, especially when driven by bots, and they're very micro focused over short periods of time. So unless there's some significant bad news, the bias is going to be to rise. Uh, we have had semi-corrections in the last couple months uh, that maybe take some of the froth out of it. I was talking to one Fed official the other day who said, you know, the, a lot of the froth has come off the markets, and that makes them feel a little bit better. Uh, we'll get back up there, but uh, then we'll see if there's some sort of reaction again. 
Now, Mike, let's talk a little bit about what we've seen in the bond markets because it really has been an incredible decline. And this quarter is probably a record loss for treasuries. We'll confirm that tomorrow, but it certainly looks like it's headed that way. And, you know, do you think that the reaction that we've seen in bonds where yields have really skyrocketed, is that almost kind of a, a limiting mechanism for the Fed where the bond market does a little bit of its job for them and potentially something that could give them pause? maybe midway through the tightening cycle and let them to let them conclude that maybe maybe we've done enough and uh, we'll, we'll call it good here. Do you think that's a possibility? Well, we haven't had inflation for a very long time, significant inflation like this. And over that time period, the Fed has become a lot more transparent. Back in the Greenspan early days the, and prior to that, the Fed never told the markets what it was doing, and they preferred to surprise them. Now, mm-hmm. they feel it helps monetary policy for everybody to know what they're doing. So if the market is simply pricing in where it thinks the Fed is going to do, which seems to be the case, then we've had a rapid repricing because the run-up in inflation has been rapid, and then we've had the other concerns about Ukraine and flight to quality. But the market hasn't gone beyond that. If the market continued to go way up, if yields continued to rise significantly and the Fed wasn't going as fast, uh, then you might have uh, the Fed worry about it. But I think they're looking at it now going, this is what we want you to do. 158.6 158.6 basis points this quarter for the US two-year. I remember I used to work for a rival network back in the Greenspan day. You try and figure out how thick his briefcase was to try and get an idea <laughs> of where rate policy was going. Mike, thanks very much indeed. Christine, thank you very much indeed. That's flown by. That was The Cable. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.